right. Good morning, church. Ronnie, got your Bibles. We're in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is where we're going to spend some time. Uh, back when I was training for a marathon, I remember one day going to a running store to buy some new shoes. And while I was there, uh, another gentleman had come in to have them look at his running form because his form didn't feel quite right. And that's kind of a normal thing when you're a runner to go to a running store and have them check your form. And they put him on a treadmill and they had him, they asked him all sorts of questions and they had him run at all sorts of speeds. But when it was all said and done, they told the man that he didn't have a form problem. They said he had a biomechanical problem, which really means he didn't have an external problem, he had an internal problem. He had a muscular issue. And they said until he dealt with that internal issue that's causing this problem with his form, he's never going to fix the external issue that's going on with his body. His issue was underneath the surface. And as we look at Matthew chapter 24 and into Matthew 25, we're going to read three stories that are really all about the issue that's underneath the surface. Because if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' teaching on the end times. That's Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. He's talked to us about the church age. He's talked to us about the rapture. He's talked to us about the tribulation and all these different judgments that are coming. We've even, last week, saw the spectacular second coming. And so the real question they had, and the real question I think we should have is, how are we supposed to live in light of all that we've learned? See, most people want to study the end times and go, great, that's cool, and then go back to life. But that's not why he taught. What he's asking is, guys, you should be living differently in light of all that I've shown you. The question is, what should the posture of our hearts and minds be during this time? And so what Jesus does to sort of drive home a point, he tells three parables. He tells a parable about a thief. He tells a parable about a steward and a master. And he tells a parable about a bride and a groom. And in each of these three stories, Jesus is going to drive home one singular message. Our internal posture determines our external response. Our internal posture determines our external response, and it matters so much to Jesus, he's going to tell us it three times. Because, you know, most of us get it on the first time, right? He's going to tell us the same thing, just a different way, three times. So starting in verse 42, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So Jesus is saying, after all that I've told you about my return, I want you, therefore, in light of all that, to take action to apply the things that I've just told you. Don't just know it. I want you to know it. Be on alert, he says, because you have no idea when I'm going to return. So it doesn't matter what any pastor says, what any prophet says, what any podcast or YouTube or anything you'll hear anywhere. Nobody knows when Jesus is going to return except the Father. That's it. The Son doesn't even know. Just the Father. In fact, Jesus says in verse 
43, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus uses this imagery of a thief coming into a home and overtaking it. Now, I've never had the unfortunate situation of being robbed or being held at gunpoint or, or knife point by a thief, but the thief comes in and the thief takes everything and he takes it however he wants. You don't know when he's coming, it's a surprise. But as we dig below the surface, Jesus' point in this parable is readiness. What was the issue that kept the man from being ready? Some of you read this and go, well, knowledge, that's what kept him from being ready. And that's not the answer. Because, you know, some people go, well, the man didn't know when this thief would arrive. And as a result of that, he was unprepared. But that's not true. Jesus is saying, the man received a warning that the thief was coming. There is a thief coming. And since he doesn't know the time in which the thief is to arrive, the responsible owner prepares this impending event by setting a watch to guard the house and protect it from possible breaking. If someone looked at you and said, someone is going to rob your house, you would probably put up cameras. You would probably take some initiative. You might tip off the police. You would do all sorts of things to be ready. You don't know when the thief is coming, but you would work to be prepared. Jesus has warned them, and Jesus has warned us. We've spent the last three weeks being warned, even if you only come to church once a month. You've been warned, because we spent three weeks, three weeks on this, about warning us and so what happens is many in the church today are not alert. We are not guarding our lives. We are not watching our lifestyle in preparation for his return. And look at the next story found in verse 45. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So Jesus here introduces a second story, one of a master who's on a journey. And he's left all of his possessions in his entire household in the hands of of a faithful steward. And he is to steward these resources in a way that honors the master. And that's what he does. He thinks how the master would steward, and then he stewards the resources given to him by the master in a way that would honor the master. And so this heart attitude is one that's rewarded even more. He says, wow, you stewarded this well. I'm going to give you even more resources because you're doing such a great job. However, what Jesus does is he contrasts that with an evil one. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, but suppose that servant is wicked in his heart and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. 
And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. So this steward here is unfaithful. He was irresponsible. The master had given this steward all sorts of things to steward in his kingdom, but instead he decided to steward these things for himself. And and the reason is this person believed in their heart, my master is never going to return. He's been on a journey. He's been delayed. He's not coming. He's never coming. And as the result, he stewards things based on his wants. He stewards things based on his desires. And as a result of that, there are awful consequences. That's verse 51. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you look at both of these stewards, both were driven to an external response based on an internal posture. And that internal posture is belief. One steward believed the master would return, and so he responded in a way that was consistent with that. His behavior followed his belief. However, the other steward did not truly believe his behavior followed his belief as well. The belief is what ultimately determined the actions of both of these individuals. And this last story, just to make sure you don't miss it, he's going to hammer home the exact same point. He tells a story about a bride, about a groom, and about ten attendants or ten bridesmaids. Look at Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or your Bible might say, ten bridesmaids, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So Jesus now tells a parable using a picture of a Jewish wedding that would have been really, really familiar to his disciples, but is not so familiar to us. Here, he's going to tell a story where we have a bride, we have ten attendants, and they're waiting with her for the groom to come. And so we have to ask ourselves, anytime a parable is taught, is who do the people in the parable represent? And also we're supposed to ask is, where are we in the parable? So it's about to be clear in just a moment that the groom is Jesus. So you don't get to be the groom, okay? The groom is Jesus because he's the one returning. So unless you're going to return in a spectacular way, which I don't think you are, um, you don't get to be the groom. And so as we walk through this, see if you can figure out who everyone else is. Now just so we're on the same page, Jewish weddings are very, very different from traditional American weddings. In Jesus' day, marriages would have been arranged. It was actually the job of the fathers to come together. So the father of the young woman and the father of the girl, they would come together. And one would say, hey, I've seen your boy. And man, is he great. He loves Jesus. He's hardworking. He's respectful. He's the type of guy that I've wanted and wished for and hoped my daughter would marry. And the other father would say the same thing. And I've seen your daughter. 
She's a woman of character and of strength, and she loves the Lord. She's respectful to her family. She's the type of girl that we've been praying for and hoping for our son to marry. And so how about we get them together? And these fathers, with the best interest of their kids in mind, they would bring these two together, and they would negotiate a bride price, recognizing that the family that was losing their daughter was going to suffer a great loss. So point being, both families were intimately involved in this whole process. Because some of you think arranged marriages was like, oh, the, the woman just forced to marry the guy. No, not in this culture. That's not the way it worked. What they would do is they would bring the, the young man and the young woman in and they would talk to them and they would listen to them. And they would work together as a family and, and they would keep working out until they came to an agreement that they were going to marry. So the, they had to sign off on the deal. So when all the parties involved had agreed and they were excited about this new union, it was time for two to become one flesh. And so they would start this process. They would take a cup and they would pour wine into it. And the young man would start, he would take it, and he would drink from this glass. And as he drank this wine, it was symbolizing this new covenant relationship. And then she would take the cup and she would drink, symbolizing that she has been bought with a price. And in many ways, this is more than our engagement. Our engagements are, will you marry me? Sure, awesome, Woo, hugs and kisses, and we're done. That's really not the way this happens here. This is a very serious covenant, and it's a long process because it's such a huge deal. But the celebratory ceremony has not officially happened yet. So, immediately after drinking from this cup, but before the ceremony, the groom would go home to his village, he would go back to his family's house, and he would build an addition onto his family's house. So at this point, you should be thinking John chapter 14. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. See the parallels to the Jewish wedding? So he would work on this addition. And he would build this addition because eventually he's going to go and get his bride and bring her back and they would live in this addition with the family. And so while he is away in his village building this new addition, the bride was in her village waiting for him to come. So this bride is there with all of her bridesmaids, and they would be making preparations for the wedding ceremony. She's got a lot to do. They have to stay focused. They have to stay on mission. Why? Because once the groom finishes building this addition, he would get his friends together, and they would travel to this village of his bride. And they would make a joyful procession, sort of like a parade. And as they entered into her village... The, the groom would, would roll into town and they would blow what's called the shofar, which is the ram's horn. And the bride would hear this trumpet being blown and know that her wedding day had finally come. And as soon as she heard it, all of these attendants would get up and they would light their lamps and they would go out and meet this groom and lead the procession all the way to the house 
of this bride. Because, see, they've been waiting for this moment. And they, everyone is starting to celebrate. And they would come and they would meet the groom in the streets and they would kind of process all the way to this home. And then, once the bride came out, they would dance all the way back to the groom's home in his village where they would have a party for seven days. Yeah, you want a party? That's a party. Right there, you know, your kids, let's party. No, that's a party. Seven days, huge feast. All the families included, all the attendants are there, the bride, the groom, the families, all celebrating the union that is to come. So this is the picture that would have been in their minds. This is the backdrop that Jesus was speaking against as he teaches the disciples in verse 1. So what does this have to do with being ready for Jesus to come back? Like, what is our posture to be? Well, look at verse 2. Jesus is going to use these attendants to represent two different postures of our hearts and our lives during the church age that we're in right now. Verse 2. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So the bridesmaids represent, in a sense, professing believers. They're the folks who have verbally expressed that they believe in Christ. They believe who he is. They are part of the visible church who is the bride. And yet what we're going to see in the story is, though they have professed him with their mouths, there hasn't been an internal change. Their behavior has not followed their stated belief. And so these bridesmaids, their job... Their main job is to lead the bride, but some of them ha have taken no oil for their lamps and torches. They're supposed to be there helping the bride, and then when the groom comes in, they're supposed to go out and lead this groom in, but they're not prepared. They have not taken their mission, their calling, seriously. It's like bringing a flashlight, but having no batteries. You have an external form... But the internal power is lacking. There's nothing there. And Jesus says, it is foolishness. He says, I don't want external. I want the internal. Behavior follows belief. Your underlying motivation, your underlying attitude and heart transformation is the substance of your faith. Five of these did not believe in the truest sense. They said things with their mouths but they denied him with their lifestyles they said things with their mouths but they denied him with their priorities and if i were to try to paint a picture of what this looks like today i would say we are more concerned with our church attendance than with attending to our sin i would say we're more concerned with fitting in with watching our likes and pursuing followers than with liking and pursuing holiness. I would say as a church today, we're more concerned with music preferences during worship services than with the lostness of our neighbor. 
We're more concerned about what translation Kevin uses, whether the King James is right or the NIV is right or whatever, rather than truly reading our Bible and living our Bible. I think I'm more concerned with keeping my small group exactly as it is than with reaching the countless others without a group. I think I'm more concerned with ranting about my freedoms than with helping the poor, the needy, the hurting, and the marginalized recover. That I am more concerned that God has not answered my prayers than with my unoffered prayers. I'm so consumed with religious things that I'm not even interested in Jesus' priorities. I'm not interested in his calling, and I'm certainly not living into his mission. The problem is, I just don't believe. I've given intellectual assent to Jesus' existence, and that church is a good thing, but the calling of Christ, the mission of Christ, has yet to permeate my life. The external things I do and say are missing an internal heart that's madly in love with Christ. The wise bridesmaids had both the external form and the internal power. They brought extra oil with them. They knew a lamp without oil is ultimately useless. Religious activity without a heart isn't helpful. Five hearts are for him, and five hearts aren't. But look at verse 5 again. It's interesting because what do they have in common? While the bridegroom was delaying, it says they all got drowsy. Not five of them. It says they all got drowsy. They all began to sleep. Jesus is saying there's going to be a delay between my ascension after I die and before I return, there's a gap there. It's going to be a period that we've called the church age. And yet, it says all ten slept. And you might look at that and think, wow, sleep, that's a terrible thing. But it's not. Sleep is prudent. Sleep is needed. It's not a negative thing. And both groups do it. And so what, what sleep represents in the parable is the normal, everyday activities of life. It's running your kids to soccer practice. It's going to work. It's brushing your teeth. It's going to school. It's volunteering in the community. All of those things matter. All of those things need to be done. But how we do them matters. Do we do them eagerly as we await Christ's return? How do we do them in such a way that we do not have to make things right or get more oil when he comes? What the wise bridesmaids were able to do is they made sure they had done the most important things first because their hearts were in the right spot. So what I want you to do is I want you to think back to the wedding picture of the Jewish wedding. So you've sealed the deal with a cup of wine. Your groom has gone back to his home to build onto the family's home, building the very place where you're going to be living. And you do not know when he's going to return to your village to get married. What would your heart's posture be until he got back? What would you be thinking every day as you went about your daily chores? Taking care of the responsibilities around the house. 
all good things that had to be done, and everything you did from dusting to working to soccer momming to serving at the church and more, you would always have in mind, you'd always be thinking, is it today? Is he coming back today? Could today be the day? Your heart would be so excited about the possibility and you would go to sleep at night disappointed that today wasn't the day, but then you'd wake up the next day expecting and hoping that maybe, just maybe, today's the day. Today's the day he's coming back for me. Now, for those of you who've been married, do you remember your wedding day? Remember your wedding day? Some of you get nudged by your spouse. You best remember the wedding day. <laughs> you know, on that day, do you remember waking up and anticipating marrying your spouse? You wake up in the morning, some things had to get done because there's always one groomsman who hadn't picked up their tux. So you got to get that person to get out there and pick their tucks up. Maybe you got the flowers out. You've got to get the family together for lunch. You've got to get your teeth brushed and get dressed or whatever. But all of these things had a mind towards what was coming that day. This was the most important day in your life. You were marrying your bride. You had pursued her, and you had loved her, and you were so excited for this day to come. This was the day. And if one of your friends grabbed you and said, hey, I've got two tickets to the NBA Finals today. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, you know. And you say, I've got two tickets to Paris for us today. I've got two tickets to a cruise to Alaska. We have this incredible opportunity. What your response would have been if they said, we have to go, you'd say, hey, that's great. And you know how much I would love to do that. But today, I'm getting married. Today, I'm getting married. Like, there's nothing more important in my life. My affections are for my bride in this moment. And as much as I would love to say yes, and, and this is so far exceeds anything you could possibly offer me, there's not a chance in the world that I would do that. This is the picture that Christ just painted about five of these bridesmaids that are ready because their heart is in the right place. Today's the day. They're eagerly awaiting the return of this groom on behalf of the bride. It's all about their affections. And their affections for him are so strong and so real, and not just external, but internal as well, that it changed the very posture, ultimately, of their behavior. In church, the same is true with us. It's our heart's posture that determines how we respond. But look at verse 6. Jesus says, At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. 
Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. So the groom arrives in the middle of the night, and they all go out to meet him. All ten had been sleeping. All ten began preparing their lamps, and some of them are turning on their flashlights, in a sense, without batteries in them, because they were unprepared. And so in the story, they look to borrow some. And some of us are like, those five wise bridesmaids, they're being so selfish. You're such mean girls. And we say that, why? Because, see, you can't borrow someone else's affections. That's the point. You can't borrow someone else's affections. You can't loan someone else your faith. You can't loan someone else your love for Jesus. You can't believe on someone else's behalf. A parent can't adore Christ for their kids. And a spouse can't love Jesus for their other spouse. You can't do that. This is an individual choice to put your faith and hope and trust and love in Christ. You can't do it for someone else. It's yours and yours alone. And the story ends tragically in verse 10. It says, But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus says, in light of all of this, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus said to the five, I don't know you. Like, you said you did all that stuff on my behalf, supposedly. You did all those external religious things, but your heart is empty and void of faith and trust in me. Your mission has never been my mission. Your priorities have never been my priorities. You say my name with your mouth, but you deny me with everything else about you. So if I return on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, you're going to be good. But other than that, you're denying me with your lifestyle. Jesus says, be alert because you do not know the day nor the hour. Three stories, one theme. Our internal posture determines our external response. Church, we're meant to read ourselves into these parables. And when we do that, where are you? Do you know of him? Or are you madly in love with him? There's a difference. Has he captured your affections on Monday and on Tuesday? Do you think about him on Thursday and Friday? Does your sin ever just weigh heavy on you? And you're like, oh God. It used to. Does his overwhelming grace ever mess with you anymore? Because there is a day that you were like, oh God, please tell me you're sufficient. I need your grace today because I'm a mess. Does holiness 
matter to you anymore, really? Or is it something to look good in front of church people? Are you eager to get back to his word anymore? Do you delight in his word? Do you ever use the word sweet with your prayer life? Like, do you ever have times when you look over the fence at your neighbor and you're not frustrated with them, your heart breaks for their lostness? Or, has somewhere along the way, have we become inoculated to the things of Christ? Have we become cultural Christians? Do we really believe that he's coming back, that he could come back on any day? And what does my life say about my mission and my priorities? What does the world see? I'm going to close with a longer reading from that Peter writes in 2 Peter. He writes about his day and about the end times together, and this is what it says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, in light of all of this, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Is he the priority of your life, really? Are you treasuring him and spending time with him above all other things in your life? Or is he getting weak excuses, lame efforts, and cheap gifts? May our hearts return 
to our first love. May he truly be your King of Kings. May he be your Lord of Lords every day. May he be my amazingly awesome, blessed hope.